Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and often in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is a conversation that I recently had with Dr. John Whiteman of Old Dominion University, which is just down the road from where I record bioscience talks in Norfolk, Virginia. He joined me to chat about his approach to science and then we delved into some of his work on animal ecophysiology and its implications for conservation biology. He's traveled around the world many, many times and has some great stories to share, and I hope you enjoy them as much as I did. And also, just as a side note, uh, we've recorded this one outdoors in my yard, so you'll hear a lot of insect chatter and also the occasional low-flying aircraft, which is just what Norfolk sounds like at night. So thank you for bearing with us, and let's go to the interview. All right, Dr. Whiteman, thank you very much for joining me today. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're going to chat a little bit about science's exploration and just kind of that topic generally and then get into a few specific topics. But, you know, kind of what does that idea mean? I've been thinking a lot about that uh, here in this last week or two. And the reason is, so we're going into fall semester at ODU. And in some ways, it feels like I'm finally getting my feet on the ground and settling into my current position. So I'm an assistant professor at ODU. Um, but I've only been here for about a year and a half. And my first semester here, actually, I was still traveling so much, which is one of the things I'll talk about in a second. I was still traveling so much um, for field work that I was out of town constantly. And even though I had rented a townhouse and I had swooped through town and I had deposited all my belongings there, I hadn't really unpacked anything. And so it wasn't, you know, my first nine or 10 months that technically I lived here, I basically wasn't here and I was on the road constantly. And then last fall, I finally settled down um, here long enough to be able to teach my first full semester. Uh, and then, and, and that was super busy and crazy because it was my first full semester of teaching. And then we went into the winter and then my teaching, um, duties in the spring were a little bit lighter. And so as we were, I felt like I was kind of coming back from this long, intense period. Do you know what isostatic rebound is? I think you better explain it for our audience. <laughs> <laughs> so the general idea that when you have a, uh, a tremendous weight on top of a large landmass, something like a glacier, um, it actually, you know, it causes that landmass to sink down. And then when you remove that, of course, by something like uh, melting that glacier, uh, the land will actually kind of spring back up. And if you imagine, you know, pushing um, something, pushing something buoyant um, down into the water and then removing your hand, it'll pop back up. Well, it's that kind of motion, but it's much slower, obviously. And that's always stuck in my head as a really good metaphor for when you go through something really intense and for a long time, and then it's done with. <laughs> There's this long recovery period that's kind of like isostatic rebound. So I felt like this spring I was going through isostatic rebound and coming out of this long, intensive period to get to where I was. Um, and I had all these grand plans then for what my life was going to be like um, once I finally, or as I finally entered this stage of, of getting to where I've been trying to get to. So the pandemic hit. Um, so I just worked from home and got through it like everybody else has been getting through it. And now school has started. And so I've like crawled out of my townhouse and gone back to campus and I'm blinking in the sunlight looking around. And I'm realizing that this is 2020. And so I'm a professor and I have an open ended permanent academic job, which is extraordinarily hard to come by. And I started this whole process really about 15 years ago. And it's just been this, I had no idea where it was going to go and how it was going to unfold. And it took me to 
places that I, I still, you know, I'm not entirely sure how I ended up getting in all these different places and all these different situations or learning these things or pursuing these things. And so I've been thinking a little bit about like, what is the theme? How did this happen? <laughs> right. And the theme that came to mind has been science as exploration. Um, and it's not the only thing, of course, but it's the one that's been at the front of my mind. Because I think that what happened was I just got really interested in exploring and figuratively um, and literally. And then I realized that I don't think that that's unique to me at all. I think that that is just the process of being a scientist. And I think that's not, that's not something that anybody told me at any point. Um, I, didn't, I don't know if I would have been able to articulate that or if I knew that's what was going to happen or that's what it was like. But I think when you do science, um, by definition, you have to go into places either intellectually um, or physically that are places that nobody has ever gone before. So in some sense, is this kind of, you know, this, this chapter, is it taking, you know, a step into, um, you know, a, a different sort of exploration? Because, I mean, you, you, we, we've talked before and, you know, you've been all over the world and studied, you know, a dizzying number of things. Um, is, is, you know, does this kind of count as a, a new type of exploration? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, yes, I, I think it does. I think it does because it is a... Up until this point, it's been really interesting how much of a solo enterprise it is when you're a graduate student um, and when you're a postdoc and when you are uh, in any of those kind of soft money between positions where you don't yet have a permanent academic home, but you're trying to stay in the academic game. Um, you know, you work with a lot of, if you're lucky, you work with a lot of amazing, wonderful, reliable people who are often very strong advocates. I had a couple advisors along the way who were amazing advocates, and I by no means got to where I am by myself. I did it with a tremendous amount of help. Um, but you also know that every stage you go through, you're going to have to leave, and you're going to come out the other side of whatever individual step that is by yourself, and you'll be by yourself in the next one. So you have to go through it solo. And What's interesting about landing in the position that I'm in now is that um, I am for the first time fully being on that other side where I am guiding other people who are doing their solo journey. You know, the obvious example of that are graduate students, but of course, postdocs, um, technicians, uh, undergraduate students, um, graduate students who take your classes. Um, so it is, uh, it's definitely a, a different it's a different phase in that you're not doing it solo and you are also um, helping other people chart their solo courses in a way that I hadn't ever done before. And so, you know, kind of what are some of the types of things that they're looking into right now? Um, and that I'm, I'm assuming that you're looking into as well as a collaborator. What, what sort of things are going on in the lab? What are you studying? Um, let's see. So I've got two graduate students right now, um, both named Zach. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> it's, it's, that is, you know, yeah, I, I don't know how that happened, but it did. Um, it is by, is anybody listening, whoever is interested in coming to work with me in research, by no means do you have to be named Zach. That is <laughs> not a requirement. <laughs> not a requirement. Total coincidence. Um, but, um, yes, so I'm working with two graduate students, and I'm also co-advising uh, co a postdoc right now. And then there's kind of a constellation of other graduate students that I'm working with in some form or another. Some of the projects that um, are at the front of my mind right now and that they are predominantly working on includes a graduate project in my lab that is focused on uh, assessing metabolic rate 
in Ursidae, uh, so Ursidae being the bear family. And specifically, we're working at a couple of different field sites in Asia. So that's in India and in Cambodia, and interested potentially in working in other countries in Southeast Asia as well. And this all goes back to um, a project that I got involved in in 2015. So I also have uh, an affiliation, and I've, I've had an affiliation since 2015 now with the San Diego Zoo, with their Institute for Conservation Research, which is a fascinating organization. They uh, off the top of my head, I, I think they're the largest private nonprofit wildlife research group, or at least one of them that I can think of that is dedicated to conservation. They're um, primarily a research group, not necessarily advocacy or um, land management or anything like that, but straight up research. Uh, they brought me onto a project, uh, so I spent the first half of 2015 living and working um, at a site in north central India in a rural area with uh, sloth bears, rescued sloth bears. Uh, they were rescued from the dancing bear trade, uh, which is had a long history in that part of the world. Um, and it uses, the dancing bear trade in general uses a variety of species, uh, but it definitely used, primarily used sloth bears in that part of the uh, southern Asian continent. Um, and there's a group of people called the Calendars uh, that's their cultural name and they were known for training sloth bears to dance and it's a pretty awful process in terms of animal welfare through which that the animals were captured and then trained but it was this long-standing cultural thing and so yeah. there's an Indian nonprofit that was founded and around the idea of rescuing dancing bears from this trade and they did an amazing job they studied the culture of it they looked at it holistically they didn't just um, say oh we don't like you know in terms of our understanding of our modern understanding of animal welfare, we don't like what's happening right now, we're gonna shut it down. Instead, they looked at it holistically and said, okay, where does this come from? What's the cultural background? Yeah. And uh, how can we tackle the whole problem in a sustainable long-term way such that we not only bring this practice, uh, the, uh, the aspects of this practice that just don't fit with our modern understanding of animal welfare, how do we bring that to an end? And how do we help the people who are involved such that they don't ever have to go back to it? Sure. And so this is a group called Wildlife SOS. And they were essentially successful. It's pretty rare in conservation to hear about uh, just straight up complete success. Yeah, you don't, like, you don't rack up that many wins. <laughs> it's not often that conservation biologists just get to throw up their hands and say, we did it. <laughs> and then they walk away. But that's exactly what happened. So this Wildlife SOS group, um, they, were, uh, they were able to um, rescue all of the... It's 99% of the dancing bears in India. Wow. So essentially all of them. Um, and they brought them into captivity. Uh, and the people who were involved with the practice uh, received a variety of things in exchange. And so... A lot of them had their education paid for for the for their kids mm -hmm. for the next generation. They were given small business opportunities. Um, there were a lot of different things that put in place to make it a more of a permanent social cultural change. As a result, though, this group suddenly had uh, pushing a thousand sloth bears in captivity. Wow, that's all. <laughs> it sounds like quite a situation to deal with. Yeah. So what do you do with them? And yeah, one yeah. of the you know their first goal was well let's just give them a comfortable life. Now unfortunately for a variety of logistical political as well as biological reasons, these animals, the vast majority of them, were not eligible for release back into the wild. Sure. So uh, first it was just, well, let's give them a better life than what they had before. And then um, the next thought was, okay, well, let's capitalize this in terms of conservation biology. Sure. So they established a partnership with the San Diego Zoo and the Institute for Conservation Research. And that led to a series of research projects. Um, and that's when I got involved. Um, and so I've been involved with that group since then. And then through that through that group and through my experience there, I've ended up getting 
linked into a variety of wildlife rescue centers in Southern Asia. And, you know, Southeast Asia is kind of known as a hub for illegal animal trafficking right. um, and sale of animal parts. And as a result, there are a lot of rescued animals in that part of the world. And so there's a fair amount of centers that spring up just to take care of uh, rescued wildlife. Um, and a fair amount of those places, and I think this is an increasing trend, are looking around and, and going through the same kind of process and saying, well, we have all these animals here and we're doing everything that we can in terms of welfare and captive care and everything. And of course, a lot of them are uh, very strongly interested in release back into the wild if they can. But there's a fair amount of animals that can't be released. So then what do you do with them? Right. And that has led to a, a slew of research projects. One of the things, so my, my perspective on this going into the situation was, well, it, you know, and this kind of goes to show like the development of science. We have this idealized version, you know, if somebody sits in a room and gets a really good idea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bare room, no books on the walls, no, you know, no influences. They just get a really good idea. And then they uh, design an experiment that will collect data such that the data will offer near incontrovertible proof in right. support of the prediction and the hypothesis. And that's just not how it works at all, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a fair amount of um, tail wagging the dog in yeah. science. Like it's it's preliminary observations and preliminary hypotheses are always kind of cooking in the back of your head. And it's a much more circular, it's more of a vat yeah. of cooking ideas and observations and facts from which you can occasionally pull, you know, things that are fully cooked. Yeah. Um, and so I, one of the things that was influencing me going into this was thinking, well, how could you, what kind of science could you do given this scenario? Like having access to a fair number of species in captivity that are relatively understudied and that are of high conservation value, and we know very little about a lot of aspects of their basic biology, what kind of questions would you ask to maximize this opportunity? And one of the questions that came up first, and this also just reflects my background as a physiological ecologist and somebody who's interested in animal energetics, is what about metabolic rate? Sure. It's, very, it's a very fundamental characteristic. Um, how much energy per unit time does an animal need? Yeah. And the answer to that question is not straightforward. The means to measure it are not easy. Um, but it ends up affecting everything because literally everything an animal does requires energy. Everything takes a kilojoule or two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so getting an idea of how much energy animals need just in terms of their baseline function and then how much energy they need when they're being active can actually be incredibly informative for all kinds of applied conservation biology questions that come on the heels of that. So, you know, this gives you the opportunity then if you've got these, you know, um, captured dancing sloth bears mm -hmm. um they're being conserved they're receiving the best care that they can receive under the circumstances mm -hmm. and it provides an opportunity to study their metabolic processes mm -hmm. and then that will have then implications for um you know future conservation down the road mm -hmm. and also just broad broad understanding and this is also you know i get the sense that this is just valuable to pick up this information and to gather this data mm -hmm. even not necessarily knowing where it's going to go in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is like, you know, this is one thing that I think about a lot is what, what is the discipline of conservation biology, um, the discipline of applied ecology versus disciplines of like basic science or yeah. basic ecology. And I think there's a lot of gray, there's a lot of overlap, and there's been a lot of ink spilled and arguments waged over defining and distinguishing between the two. Whereas in 
in reality, as is true for most things in life, there's some kind of a spectrum and there's some kind of a gradation, right? But at one end of it, I think, is the role of basic science in that it applies the substrate upon which all other intellectual endeavors are built, sure. right? And although Leopold a long time ago wrote about, um, oh, I can't remember it now, but it's something like the parsimony principle or something like that, in yeah. that if you're taking apart a machine and you don't know how it works, uh, you don't throw away any of the pieces. <laughs> Um, we, we can only act on the things that we know and we can only build on the things that we know. And so if we don't know how the world works, then we've, we've shot ourselves in the foot before we've even started trying to do anything useful in it. And so I view myself as somebody who is, you know, in some circles and in some instances and on some projects, I am a conservation biologist. Uh, but in many others, I'm an apply, or I'm sorry, I'm a basic biologist or basic physiologist. But what I'm doing is always working on species and ecosystems and field sites that are only ever a step removed from conservation and from direct specific questions that somebody might want to ask and answer to help in a given scenario. But they can only ask and answer those questions if they have a basic understanding of what the system is and how it works. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about how you achieve that basic understanding. Um, you know, how do you take the sloth bear and, you know, find out what it needs to, you know, sit and do nothing or walk around? You know, the, I mean, right. what's, what's that process look like? How, what are the ways that you can kind of interrogate that situation and figure out what's going on? Sure thing. And this is like, I love the way you phrase that question because I literally taught this in my class <laughs> a couple <laughs> days ago. So I can get out a whiteboard and diagram it for you. Um, so, uh, and, and first to clarify, you know, I, I spent a lot of time working with this, and I'm still working with this group, Wildlife SOS, um, in uh, north central India. I'm also working with a group called Free the Bears in Cambodia, uh -huh. and there they have um, sun bears and Asiatic black bears, which are, so now we're up, we're talking about sloth bears, sun bears, Asiatic black bears, that's three of the eight um, Ursidae, extant species in the Ursidae family, so living species of bears. And we're taking a similar approach with all three of these species, actually. Uh, and that is we're doing one of the methods of what's called indirect calorimetry. So there's direct calorimetry and indirect calorimetry. Now, the thing about um, the rate at which an animal is using energy is in the scientific sense, uh, heat and energy are strictly synonymous. They mean the exact same thing. They have the same measurement units, the kilojoule okay. or the calorie, if you're British or old school or looking <laughs> right. on your Snickers bar wrapper. Sure. <laughs> um, so they all have the same uh, unit of energy, the kilojoule, these two things, they're strictly synonymous. And if you make a couple of assumptions that are uh, fairly easy to meet and, and easy to understand, if you are confident in those assumptions, you can measure the heat of an animal and you can therefore understand its energy use. So sure. those two things can become one and the same. Now you can measure the heat um, by doing something like um, uh, measuring its body temperature, you could surgically implant a temperature logger, which I've also done in a different bear species, actually, in polar bears, another sure. one of the extant species. Uh, or you could do something called uh, respirometry, and that is you measure the amount of oxygen consumed or the amount of CO2 produced by an animal. And then we know, because people have done this like in test tubes, essentially, we know exactly how much heat is produced when you take a little bit of food and you uh, burn it with that amount of oxygen. Okay. And so we know there's a direct relationship between the amount of oxygen consumed and the number of kilojoules that are processed. Or there's a direct relationship between the amount of carbon dioxide produced and the number of kilojoules. So we can just do that simple conversion. So then 
what this means then for bear, doing work with bears in the field is that uh, you want to put the bears in a scenario where you can measure exactly how much oxygen they're consuming or how much CO2 they're producing. And you can, you can do these kind of studies with humans. It's done all the time in human physiology, exercise physiology. And humans, um, you know, one of the upsides to us is that by and large we follow instructions. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> if, if only you, better. Maybe. <laughs> if you ask us to put on a mask um, and to leave it securely on our mask so it's completely covering our nose and mouth and all the oxygen we're consuming can be monitored and all the CO2 we're producing can be monitored, we'll do that. Um, but most wildlife, you can't tell them to do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> not, a, not a conversation you want to have with a bear. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Um, so instead, what you can do is put them into what's called a metabolic chamber. Okay. And that is essentially, it's a chamber. And it can be any size, um, you know, from relatively small to like the size of a whole room. Um, and you allow fresh air to be uh, um, either pushed into via fans or pulled into via fans, either way. You allow fresh air to flow into the room, and then you pull the used air out the opposite side of the room. And so the idea is that all the fresh air that's coming in has the opportunity to pass over the animal and has the opportunity to either have oxygen extracted by the animal or to have CO2 added by the animal. And then that used air gets pulled out the other side, and it goes down a long tube, and then it goes over a set of oxygen and carbon dioxide sensors. And so we know the gas composition of the atmosphere. We know the composition of the atmosphere going in, because that's just our atmospheric concentration. Now, a funny thing about that is that our atmosphere, if, you're, if you dry the air, it's 20.95% oxygen. It used to be 0.03-something you know, 0.034 or right. 0.035. It used to be something, that kind of percent for the CO2 concentration. Not that long ago, but it has gone up so much that we have to adjust our calculations for how we um, measure the amount of CO2 being added to an airstream by an animal for the fact that our background CO2 is rising. Is that a result of the, you know, the sort of emissions that cause climate change? Yeah, yeah. Wow. We have to account for the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere that um, was that that C and that CO2 was a fossil fuel last year. It was oil last year, and now it's CO2 up in the atmosphere. And that's happening to such an extent that it is altering the background measurements that we take. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, so so then you, you from this you get a good idea of, you know, the air that is going in and that it's, you know, being in, inhaled and exhaled by the animal. And from there, you can infer the number of calories or mm -hmm. kilojoules that are, are being expended. Yep, um, exactly. And this gives you an idea of, you know, the, the metabolic rate for whatever activity is going on inside mm -hmm. the metabolic chamber. Mm -hmm. um, how do you close the loop then to get to something that, you know, would be applicable outside of the metabolic chamber? You know, how does that apply? How do you begin to think about that? Sure. You know, kind of in the real world or in the wild, as it were. Sure, sure. Well, I can give you a great example, actually, from somebody else's recent work. So there's a paper um, that I believe came out in Science in 2018, I think, and it was um, led by uh, somebody named Anthony Pagano, and there's a whole host of researchers on it. And in a lot of this work, there was a couple of different institutions. I think University of California was in there um, and as the affiliations. Um, I believe San Diego Zoo was. Uh, the U.S. Geological Survey was. So there's a variety of people in it. And they did these same kind of measurements um, with polar bears. And one of the things that they were then able to turn around and calculate was, okay, how much energy does a polar bear need just as a baseline measure or to, to maintain its baseline function? We call yeah. that resting metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate. 
Um, there's a slight difference between the two, but when you're talking about wildlife, again, wildlife tends not to follow instructions. Sure. And so to achieve the kind of strict measurement conditions that you need um, for measuring basal metabolic rate, it usually doesn't happen. So we generally call it resting metabolic rate, and it's just a little bit different for animals. But so you get an idea of, okay, how many kilojoules does the polar bear need when it's just sitting there to stay alive? And then how many kilojoules does it need on a daily basis when it's walking around doing its polar bear thing? And then you convert that to seals. And then suddenly you're able to talk about, well, okay, we all know that um, melting sea ice poses a big hazard for polar bears. How exactly is that going to play out? What are the numbers involved here? And the numbers involved there are the lost number of days of hunting opportunities on the surface of the sea ice. And per lost hunting day, how many um, seal captures is the polar bear losing? And how many kilojoules is it losing? And then what kind of a dent is that going to put in its annual energy budget to put it in a negative energy balance? So that's that's kind of the full circle in that case. That's interesting. So it's got, it would be a case of, you know, you can, you can figure out how much weight that polar bear is going to lose hypothetical polar bear. Yep. Because of, you know, it's lost opportunity to hunt sea ice because you don't, you know, you don't have that because of, you know, the, the changing climate. Yep, exactly. And there was another interesting paper actually, um, a couple years back as well that did, it took a very similar approach um, and it also used a metabolic chamber to measure the uh, energy requirements, the metabolic rate of giant pandas. Except then, in co- of course, instead of looking at the, uh, the broad landscape and trying to calculate how many seals were needed, it looked at the broad land, the paper looked at the broad landscape and said, um, how many acres of uh, viable bamboo do we have? Yeah. Because that's the primary food source. Sure. But it was the same kind of end result application of trying to look at the landscape and say, how much food is out there? Uh, and what kind of population can that support? And as the environment changes and the amount of kilojoules in the primary food source goes up or goes down, how does that translate to the energy demands for an individual animal? That's interesting. And so, you know, we, we've talked about metabolic chambers a lot, but before we close out, I, you know, let's, let's kind of broaden it out a little bit mm-hmm. and talk about some of the other methodologies. So what are some of the other ways that you kind of, you know, look at these types of questions? Sure. And so this is, this kind of, this comes back to what I've been thinking about with scientific exploration, because it's, you know, everything that I was just talking about, some of that has involved going to new places that I'd never been to before. I mean, for at one point doing some of the polar bear work that I was involved in, um, we took a Coast Guard icebreaker and we went almost to the North Pole and we were flying helicopters off of it and capturing bears. And for the work in Southeast Asia, um, I, I've traveled to a lot of different places um, that I had never been to before. And we were able to kind of establish some research centers where previously there hadn't been some. Um, but then the intellectual piece of it is also all about going into new places that, you know, represent perhaps an overlap of fields or an overlap of ideas that had not been identified or had not been worked with before. And so one of those that's been on the front of my mind lately um, in the last couple of years, and it's a, it's a paper that I published last year, uh, is a, it's a new variable, a novel variable that we're hoping is going to be um, a new means to approach the estimation of metabolic rate amongst other physiological variables as well, actually. Um, and so this is, so everything we've just been talking about, like how much energy does an animal have to use on a per unit time basis? If you can put an animal, if you can get a hold of an animal and get them into a metabolic chamber, then you're good. 
And if that scenario presents itself, if you can do something like capitalize on the existence of a wildlife rescue center, sure. then you're good. <laughs> yeah. But if you don't have that opportunity, or especially if you're trying to work um, exclusively with wild animals, then it becomes much more challenging, much more challenging to try and estimate the energy use of a wild animal. Uh, there is essentially only one method that's currently available. Um, it's called the doubly label water method, and it's based on injecting a chemical tracer, um, letting, it, letting it equilibrate with the animal's body water, and then letting the animal go. It goes out and it does its wild animal thing, and then you have to recapture the animal, sample it again, and then evaluate the presence of that tracer. And so this is an amazing method. Um, it's been heavily used now for, oh, what, about 60 years, I would say, something like that. Um, and it's led to some real groundbreaking insights that otherwise were not possible. But the big hang-up with it is that you have to capture the animal twice. Right, that sounds challenging. Yeah, and there are some <laughs> animals that are almost impossible to capture, and then there are other animals for which a second capture is just a total pipe dream. Okay, <laughs> right. Um, and so what I'm working on, um, and what I actually just recently got grant funding to pursue, so you know, stay tuned, hopefully we'll have a lot more to say on this sure. in the next couple of years, uh, is a method that would allow you to at least approximate a similar kind of measurement with just a single capture or a single sample and kind of the holy grail something we're really trying to push towards way off in the distance and um, would be able to do this without even having to capture the animal so perhaps you could get it from some kind of non-invasively tissue non-invasively sampled tissue sample something like a fur sample or something okay. like that and the idea with it is um just to give you a, a a broad picture of it the overall idea is that um all animals on earth that we know of um they must use oxygen to uh, burn their food. Sure. Now this was true actually up until 2010. <laughs> so now I got to add a little asterisk. Okay. What <laughs> there happened was, in 2010? There was a paper published in 2010. Um, uh, I believe it was in BMC Biology, Dan Alvarez et al. I think, and uh, it was a fascinating paper. This research group went in. They took a remotely operated vehicle. They went into the deep sea in the Mediterranean. And they went to some anoxic sediments. Okay which there are these sediments that, if I understand it correctly, were trapped beneath this hypersaline layer of water. So a very, very salty layer of water that prevented the water below that layer from mixing with the water above. And so whatever life was trapped below that layer used up all the oxygen at some point, and then it didn't mix. It did not replenish the oxygen. And so it became a very anoxic environment and very anoxic sediment. And this deep sea research group, they pulled up that sediment and they they picked through it and they found metazoans, which it's, uh, it's basic... Basically, it's a way of saying um, multicellular organisms that have specialized cells, so animals. Okay. It's a way to define animals. Um, they found animals in there that appear to spend their entire life cycle in this habitat without any oxygen. So they burn food for energy just like you and I do, but they do not use oxygen. So they do not have mitochondria, which if anybody out there has taken to their general biology, they might remember the phrase, it's the powerhouse of the cell yes <laughs> <laughs> i remembered something there you go powerhouse of the cell um it's the powerhouse of the cell and it's where oxygen is used um, to burn food sure these animals don't have mitochondria okay so it's crazy so these are the first animals as far as we know on our planet that uh burn food just like everybody else but they don't use oxygen to do it okay so that's the asterisk right. so putting that aside everybody else all the other animals they sure. have to use oxygen when they when animals use oxygen um to burn food uh, for energy they actually end up combining that oxygen with hydrogen and they make water okay so we are our own water factories so we synthesize our own h2o now it stands to reason then that if you're burning a lot of food for energy 
that means you are using up a lot of oxygen and that means that you are producing a lot of your own water, right? Because for every little bit of food you burn, you have to use a little bit of oxygen and the fate of that oxygen is to be incorporated into water. And so uh, the idea that I'm after then is if you can assess how much water an animal is making internally, mm-hmm. then you can assess indirectly its energy use. So you know how much oxygen it's using and therefore you know how many kilojoules. Then you can get, yep, it all goes back to the heat and uh, yep, it goes back to the kilojoules. Exactly. Is there a way then to to get that at that from a non-invasive sampling from a, you know, a chunk of fur or a we are, fecal sample? Yes. I, uh, <laughs> I say yes in that it's a long, arduous road we have ahead of us. And right. it's, it's um, going to be hot off the press, but that is absolutely um, one of the things that we are geared towards. Well, that's really exciting, and, uh, and we'll be sure to stay tuned. Thank you very yeah. much for joining me today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.